0: Morning, everyone. It's good to see you all again. For those of you who are new, my name is Chris, as Ben said. I'm one of the leaders here at St. Peter's. Um, one of my roles has been to look at our need for midweek community groups. Um, as the church has grown over the last year, we realize that Sunday mornings it's quite difficult to connect with everybody. Um, and so, for those of you who are excited about this, we're going to be launching what we call villages in a couple of weeks time you can sign up on the website from next week all the details will be on there um, as I said villages are our midweek, mid-sized community groups um, and the purpose of them is that we can grow in community it's a place to be known it's a place to know other people it's a place to grow in our faith to be supported and to support others and most importantly to know God's unconditional love for us Villages are going to be a safe place to become the person that you were always created to be. They're called Villages because the Southeast London feels like a collection of small villages like Blackheath, Newcross, Brockley, Deptford. They've all got their own unique identities. So we just thought that was a nice pithy name. Have we got the slide for the Villages? No, it's fine. So there's a village uh, that will be led in Deptford by um, John and Anna, There'll be another one led in Lee by Mark and Esther. There's another one that will be led in Broccoli by Lynn. Lynn can't retire as much as she's trying to. Um, There'll be another one led in Crofton Park and New Cross led by Dave and Steph. Um, And we anticipate actually there'll be more over the next few months that will have to occur because the church is still growing. Um, Each village will have, you'll all be pleased to know, experienced other leaders. So people like Jerry and Nita, Andy and Jill, um, Phil and Caroline, and they're there really to stop the other guys drifting off into heresy. Um, the reason I'm really excited about villages is also because all of these guys have led stuff before. So, the likes of John and Anna have done these sort of things many, many times. Um, and so, it's either they've led these kind of mid sized midweek groups before, or they've even led churches. A lot of our guys are previous church leaders as well. Um, and as I said, for us, they feel like as a staff team, a core piece of infrastructure um, that is needed to underpin what God's been doing in St. Peter's over the last 12 months. Um, and it is a place of where we can ensure we can go deeper, because I don't know about you, but Sunday mornings, they come and go like that, and you never actually get to ask proper questions and to connect with people. Last week, Ben spoke about being fully known. If you didn't hear it, you should listen to it on the website. Um, and I don't know about you, but the idea of being fully known is really uncomfortable, um, it's, it's uncomfortable because we have to let people know who we really are, warts and all. They get to know our faults, they get to know um, all of our issues. And for me and probably for many people, it, to be fully known is quite scary because there's a fear that actually if you really know me, that you, you could reject me, you could walk away from me, you could leave me, that you'll judge me as not good enough and that you'll walk away. And I mean, it could be a scary place. Um, We also know that being vulnerable and being in family is quite difficult to do. I mean, how many of you are right now in some sort of conflict with other people? You don't have to put your hands up, but you can do. Um, Or or like this conflict within your family. It feels like family itself, although it's brilliant and is a nice place where you can go, you can let your mask off, you can be yourself. It's also a place um, where you can get hurt. It's like quite a popular place to get hurt. Um, so to ask you to be family is both brilliant and it's hard and we acknowledge that so how do we expect you guys to become family with 20 or 30 strangers and as I said it's not easy old safety sensitive Ben stood up on stage last week and talked about how that was quite a difficult thing to be vulnerable from the stage and to to allow you into stuff that him and his family have been going on But what we see is there's real power in that. There's not just power to be kind and empathize and to pray for Ben and the family. But actually, we've seen real power in seeing Luli receive incredible healing. And Ben was saying that the doctors, for those of you who weren't here, Ben's daughter got burnt on her back. And the doctors said that she would categorically need a skin graft across her back. But the church family has been praying for the last few weeks and it has shrunk right down. And they haven't done the graft yet because they're holding off because they now think that they they don't have to do it. So just keep praying. We're nearly there. It's minute now. But we just pray that she doesn't have any skin graft at all. And that we know that the the power of prayer is, is actually amazing, the doctors who are seeing her each week. The power of vulnerability is also brilliant because it breaks off the power of shame. And shame is what one feels about oneself. It's not necessarily a bad thing you've done and you feel guilty, it's, it's about yourself. And when you're vulnerable, you let people know who you really are. And, and it breaks off this fear of being found out, this fear that if people know the real me, then they're gonna leave me. So when we are vulnerable with each other, actually we, we break that lie that we so often believe about ourselves. Um, Our framework at St. Peter's is family. Um, It always has been and it always will be. Why? It can be difficult. Um, Well, as Ben said last week, it's such a common thread throughout the whole of the New Testament. Actually, church is referred to as family so many times. Um, So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to delve into one story in particular in Scripture about um, God's family. In Luke 15, there is a story of a man with two sons. The reason we know it's a story about a man with two sons is because Jesus says, this is a story about a man with two sons. Now, I know this is complex, but I'm pretty confident this story is literally about a man with two sons. The youngest son comes to his father and he says, Dad, I've been waiting for a while. Can I just have my inheritance now? And obviously what happens is that you usually get your inheritance when someone else dies. So this is a massive insult, essentially saying, I kind of wish you were dead so I could have my money now. And we need to understand the cultural force of this passage, because when the younger son comes to him and says, he's like, I literally cannot wait any longer, can I just have the cash? And this is incredibly insulting. Michael Ramsden, who's a fantastic theologian who I've stolen half this talk from, but he says that the first century Middle Eastern father is expected to kind of beat his son now for such indolence. Now, the older brother in this story is supposed to be a peacemaker. The older brother in this culture is supposed to mediate between the father who wants to punish the son and also go to his brother, give him a clip upside the head and say, come on, you need to pull yourself back into line. So when Jesus tells this story to the original audience, they're expecting either for the father to come down heavy on the son or the older brother to pull up his younger brother and say, come on, we can't do this. That's not what happened. And this is why it's so surprising to the original audience. So the younger brother says to his his father, dad, I want my share of the estate." And scripture says, so the father divided his wealth between his two sons. Between both of them. He divides his wealth between both his sons, and both of them take it. The older son doesn't say, No, 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 I couldn't possibly take this. He takes his share of the wealth also, which in this culture is utterly unthinkable. And so the younger son, he gathers all his stuff and he heads off into a far country. And I think it's really careful, we need to be careful to read what the Bible actually says. I can often run ahead and think I know what it says. And it actually says that the son squandered the wealth in wild living. Now wild living doesn't mean gross living, it means expensive living. He wore the finest clothes, he ate at the finest restaurants, he had the best camel. You know, like he had the best stuff. I know that later on the brother's going to accuse him of of spending it on prostitutes, but that's not actually what the text says. So he's got his cash, he's got his money, and he blows the lot. He spends all of his money. And then the scripture then says, and at this time, a famine sweeps the land. So he's got nothing now. He's spent all of his money. He doesn't have enough money to feed himself. The Bible says that he's starving So he persuades a local farmer to give him a job, and the local farmer gives him the job of feeding pigs. Now, I don't have time to talk about how bad this is for a Jewish person to be feeding pigs, but it's pretty significant, and it gives us an indication of how desperate he was. He was so hungry, he was longing to eat pig food. So follow the logical chain, he's spent all his money, He's hungry. He wants to eat the pig food. His most basic need is food. And he's so desperate. He can't get any lower. And his basic need is food. When he comes to his senses, he says to himself, I'm going to read this bit. Even my father's servants have more than enough food. And here am I, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, can I just be one of your hired servants? I'm sure many of you have heard this passage many, many times. Um, But again, I want to look at the words closely. He was in need and he was hungry. He wants to eat pig food. He's got no food. The subject of this is what? Food. Thank you, Ben. Someone's listening. He comes to his senses and he says what? My father's servants have more than enough food. He's thinking about his stomach. So he says, I will go to my father. Why is he going to his father? Because he's hungry. Thank you. Well done. The son is motivated because he has a bankruptcy in his life and he can do nothing about it. And he thinks, maybe, maybe my father can help me out. He thinks, I need to go to my father and I need to give him this good little speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The theologian Kenneth Bailey points out that this form of repentance is the same as which we see in the Old Testament where Pharaoh repents before Moses um, and says, I'm sorry, please take these plagues away. But what we do understand about that is that repentance isn't actually genuine. The Sun is acting in the same way. I think it's interesting how sometimes we can, if we're being honest and I mean really, really honest we can use God to get our own needs met. And I think we can often use people to do that too. We're prepared to put on a show, we're prepared to feign that we're sorry, we're prepared to say some words, to utter some things that we think will get us out of trouble. And sometimes it just isn't real. The youngest son is thinking about his stomach and how he can get his needs met. But Jesus knew that, and he said this. Whilst the father was a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion and love for his son, he ran to him and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. If you pick up any, um, any commentaries around this text, this is the amazing bit of the story. It's the father that ran. And the reason this is amazing is because back in that culture, they would all wear long dresses. And to be able to run, as most of you women will know, you have to kind of hold your, your dress or your skirt and you have to run. And this is, this is actually quite disgusting in that culture because men weren't supposed to reveal their legs to other people. But this father sees his son, who is thinking with his stomach, and he sees him returning to him and he picks up his garment and he runs to his son. He runs to his son in the sight of the village. He humbles himself in front of his whole community. And he does it out of a place of unconditional love. And for me, if God can humble himself and can love unconditionally without regard to his own pride and his own dignity in the sight of a village, then I think it's a good starting place for us. The father threw his arms around him and kisses him. And kissing is really important in this culture. A slave would fall at their master's feet and kiss them. The student would kiss their um, tutor or the their rabbi's hands. But equals family. They would embrace each other and they'd kiss either on the neck or the cheek. And the reason for that is you're so close, you've got nowhere else to kiss them. It's a sign of peace. It's a sign of reconciliation, that there is nothing between us. And before the son can even give his little speech that he's prepared, the father runs to him, the father puts his arm around him, and the father kisses him. The father offers the son this peace and reconciliation before the son asks for it. And the son, having embraced his father, turns to him and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's it. Where's the bit about being his hired servant? It's at this point that the son realizes that it's not about the spent money, it's about the broken relationship. The son cannot repay his father for anything. He can't can't earn his way back. He's got nothing. I think it's sad that sometimes in our Christian lives we feel like we have to earn our way back into God's favor. That somehow if I do enough, that he'll forgive me. And the reason we think this is because nearly every culture around the world, forgiveness is earned. That somehow um, if I do enough, if I pay the price, then I'll be forgiven. So imagine that after the service today, you come up to me, and there's a few other people around, and you ask a question. And in front of everybody, I just look at you and I say, that is a stupid question. And for some reason, you're insulted by my response. Now, imagine after the service, people have gone, and I walk out, and I see you, and I pat you on the back, and I'm like, sorry about that. You know, please forgive me. And I walk off. Would you forgive me? Honestly, would you forgive me? Quite hard to please you lot. Now imagine something different. Imagine that I've just insulted you. And then seconds later, my bottom lip starts to go. My eyes fill up with tears. I drop to my knees. I crawl across the floor. And I hold your ankles. And I beg you to forgive me. Would you forgive me now? Thank you. You can go to heaven. Mm. The message of the Christian gospel is not if you've done something wrong and you're good enough and you're good enough towards God, if you suffer enough, that you will be forgiven. The gospel message is that before we even ask for forgiveness, God gives it to us. It's the Father that runs to the Son. The father runs to the son and offers unconditional love and complete forgiveness. And it's at this point that the son truly repents. Because forgiveness is not earned, it is offered as a gift. And that is what leads to true repentance. And that is why becoming a Christian is so inherently humbling. Because there's no room for boasting or arrogance in our Christian life. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says, what room is there for boasting? We cannot boast of anything because our acquittal, our forgiveness is based on the faith in Jesus Christ. He offered forgiveness to us before we even asked for it. That is what we respond to. Even as Christians, people upset us, people annoy us, people offend us, and they say stuff that hurts us just like was done to the Father. But the Father offers forgiveness first. If someone's upset you or offended you and you're sat there now waiting for them to come and apologize, that's not how it's going to work. It is good to apologize. I think we should be professional apologizers, but I'm quite good at apologizing. I jump in. But I do think that we also cannot always expect that. If someone's upset you or offended you, it's on us to resolve this and to forgive forgiveness is offered in the Christian faith is not earned but the only way that forgiveness can really be received so it can be given but the only way it can be received is when there's true repentance and true repentance can only happen when we're genuinely sorry and you can only really be genuinely sorry when you're prepared to admit that you were wrong And that is why it is inherently humbling. And there's no room for pride or arrogance in our Christian lives. And that's what happens to the youngest son now. The father says, bring him a robe, bring him a ring, and bring him sandals. The father pays to clothe him. The father pays to bring him back into the community. And then the father says, let's kill the fatted calf and have a party. Meanwhile, the oldest son is out in the field And when he returns home, he hears music and he hears dancing and he says to one of the servants, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother's returned and your dad has his lost son back. So he's killed the fat calf and he's got him back safe and sound and now we're all partying. And it's interesting what the brother's reaction is here. He becomes furious with his father and he refuses to go in. So the father has to come out of the party and plead with his older son now the older brother reacts angrily to his father and he says this, all, years, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeying you, and you never gave me a young goat that I could even celebrate with my friends. Is that true? Isn't this a story that started off with a father who divided his wealth between his two sons? Have you ever been so angry you start to say things that aren't even true? Maybe you're not as angry as I can get, but I think a lot of us can get in our anger, start saying stuff, and sometimes we just wish we hadn't said it. The story starts with the father taking everything he has and giving it to both sons. They both get everything. What does it tell you about the older brother's relationship with the father? I mean, it's, it's not the most appropriate time to start going at it with your, with your parents, is it? It's kind of like on Christmas Day when they've got all their friends and family around for drinks and you decide to stand outside of their house yelling and shouting at them. And if, I, if we treated our own parents this way, what would it tell you? It would tell us that our relationship with our parents is broken too. This is a story about a father and two lost sons. They're both lost to him. And a lot of people can read this and think, I kind of understand the older brother's anger. You know, the younger son got got all this wealth and then he's come back and he's got even more. But that's not actually what's happened in this story. The older brother is angry at his dad's grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is the anger of self-righteousness. The difference between the two sons is the younger one realized that he was lost and he came back. And the father, the older one, Hasn't realised it yet. So who are we in this story? Well, we're not the father, that's God. So we fall into the categories of the two sons. So what do we do? I'm going to spin around. What I'd like us to do is if you find yourself in the position of the younger brother, because sometimes we do mess up, let's be honest, we don't always want to, but sometimes we mess up. And we wander away from God. Our response needs to be to run back into his loving arms. Don't delay, don't take your time, don't wallow in self-pity and loathing and think that you're a slug, you're not. You need to run back to your father and ask for forgiveness. If you find yourself in the older brother position, which is going to be common if we're going to be a family with each other, on the one hand, family is incredible, isn't it? Like you get to build community, you get to have fun, lots of laughter, lots of, lots of good times, but it also in these relationships, we're going to open ourselves up and people are going to hurt us as well. We're going to get offended. And for me, the way of the older brother is the wrong way to respond. We can't hold back forgiveness because that means that we'll then start to resent people and we'll start to feel bitter and we'll pull ourselves away. And that breaks community. We need to be quick to forgive. Also, the love that we truly need to thrive, the affirmation and attention that we need, it needs to come from God first not from our younger brothers and sisters, not from our siblings. It is important that to be able to love that we get filled up with God's love first. And our primary source is God. And as much as leaders like Ben and Hanau are incredibly loving, you're not going to get what you need from them. It's just not going to happen. You need to get it from God first and then from the rest of the family. And if we get it from God first, it's so much easier then to forgive other people. So what do we need to do as a church? I think we need to get brilliant at forgiveness and repentance. And so for us, villages, like I talked about at the start, is that safe place. It's a safe place for the younger brother to run to, to for the older brothers to bring them in and to help them and to love them, and sisters, by the way. Um, and it's as, as a family where we can then come to, together to God the Father, to love us as good siblings. The villages will be the space where we can get real, where we can repent and we can be forgiven and we can forgive. A lot of you won't know this, but I'm going to tell a very quick story. About seven years ago, I went to a ministry school in America and it was an incredibly transformative time in my life. And um, they, a lot of their culture is based around... Um, love and forgiveness and there's a book called the culture of honor which comes from this and there's a story at the start of this book which underpins what they do um, and how they try and love and it goes a bit like this there's um, the leader of the school goes to one of the pastors and says we've got a bit of a problem two of our returning first years have had sex in the summer and now they're pregnant pregnant and they're not married so this looks bad in a culture where um, you're you're trying to do things biblically and all of a sudden, these two people walk around the halls. They're not married and they're pregnant. They're like, what do we do? So they, they say, let's just talk to them. So they pull them in and they just say to them, what's the problem? And the boy looks at the, the pastor and is like, well, haven't they told you? And he's like, they, they have, but what's the problem? So he says, well, she's pregnant. And he's like, okay, what's the problem? And the boy is just like, I, I don't understand your questions. I don't understand what you're saying. And he's like, we understand that she's pregnant, but what's the real problem? What, what is the problem, essentially, that has led to this? So then through conversation, through loving conversations, and the way I, I like the way they do it. You should read the book. They do it through questions. They said, said to him, how, how did this happen, essentially? He says, you know, we were staying up late watching movies, and then I'd try and leave, and she wouldn't let me leave. She'd get really, really angry with me. And so, I mean, this is typical blaming someone else's behavior, but he's like, yes, yeah, you just wouldn't let me leave. So then the pastor says, so the problem here sounds like you change your morals and your character when people get angry at you. That sounds like it's a problem. Is that something that you want help fixing? And the guy's like, yeah, actually it is. Because he wanted to be free to make his own decisions, but actually there was something within him that was not allowing him to do that. So then the, the pastor turns attention to the, to, the, to the girl and does the same thing. What's the problem? And in the book it's brilliant. It's like she just didn't want to engage, but she got to a point where she was like, she had a fear of being rejected, a fear of being left. She had a fear that actually when people leave her, they'll never come home. And he's like, is that something you want us to help you fix? And she's like, yes, please. And so what, they, what, they, what this couple expected was to be kicked out and to be basically scorned from a community. But actually what the pastors said, no, your family. This is not a business. You don't get sacked from family. You stay and we hold you and we make sure that we can love you into wholeness. One of the other brilliant analogies from the story is that he said that it's like you're carrying a bucket of paint and you've dropped this now. There's a bit of a mess and you need to clean this up. So who do we tell? So the, these guys are like, well, we need to tell our home churches. they're sponsoring us. Um, but also, we feel like we need to tell our classmates. So these are second years. And so they go up in front of their class and they say, look, we are sorry. This is going to affect you as much as us. Will you forgive us? And what I love about this story, and it always, crack, it always breaks me, is that the class get around them and they pray for them and they love them and they support them and they say, oh, we've got you. And then they get told there's a gap in first year. And I've been in this school, and first year's 1,100 people. It's a lot of people to get up and say, I've messed up. And so they get up in front of first year. And the best bit about the story for me is um, it's the second year, they come in, and it says they line the halls around the thing, like they're their guardian angels, and they're saying, we've got you. You know, like, it's Okay. And so for me, the dream is, to not cry again during a preach, is <laughs> that, <It's>, uh, <laughs> the dream for me is that we can build that culture here. You know what? Like, we can, go to the deep of ish- we can go to the depth of some of those issues, and we can say, look, we can do this together. We can hold you, and we're not going to let you go. Your family, and actually, we will support you, and as much as we can prejudge ourselves, we've got you, we'll surround you, and you're safe. And that's my heart for what we build through villages. Is that these are places where we can go and say, I've messed up. But as a family, we get around you. And in these villages, we can be fully known. And look, guys, I'm going to hold my hands up. We're not always going to get it right, but we're going to try our best, and we're not going to let go of each other. And it's a place where, like Ben did last week, you can get up on and say, "Uh, something's happened, and I need your support and your prayer. And I think together, that's where we contend for miracles that we need in our lives.